How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Welcome. That was great. That was great. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That was really great, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Good about it. I didn't stand up to do it this time, but nonetheless. Well, you know, if, if you'd stood up to do it on Facebook, they would have just seen your navel. So, because <laughs> you never know uh, these days with Zoom, do you? Zoom. Really, you know, what is somebody wearing below the sight line? Well, we've seen a few people um, have not been wearing what they're supposed to be wearing, and it's gone viral, too, which is kind of funny. Viral. Yeah, that can happen. And, and we got our uh, guest tonight, Dr. Joe. We have Diane Dewey. Of, I, I'm telling you, I'm so excited to have you here, Diane. Thank you oh. so much. Well, thank I, you. I'm excited to be here. What a great, oh. what a great gang you have here. You Terrific. know, we we are, and and Diane also has a show uh, called it's called Dropping In, right? Right. And that's but that's um that's on a huge network too, right? I mean, it's like. What's it, America or something? What, what network are you on? Voice America, and, and it, um, is, it's, it is global. We've got some uh, Chinese people listening, some Russian people listening. Cool. Um, it, it is it's a totally, it is a cool thing. Uh, people like to hear each other's stories, you know, it connects them. So, so is that a play on dropping out? Well, actually, um, there are several times when I make typos that I have like dripping in and <laughs> but but actually what it it came from, a friend of mine was talking about how when his parents, when he grew up, that people used to just drop in on one another. You know, we weren't so busy then. We didn't have um, some busy, busy schedules where you could say, oh, no, I can't. Um, people just drop by. And I, as I listened to him speak, I thought to myself, yeah, dropping in. I remember that. And it was this cool, spontaneous thing where people just wanted to get together and did. And now we know that's an ancient artifact. But when I thought about dropping into subjects and the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. It's, it's, a, it's a great title and it, it really is wonderful to just think about the whole concept of dropping in because we really don't do that as much anymore. How, how often do you have somebody just knock at the door and it's a neighbor who's just uh, certainly less now with COVID and coronavirus, but even before that, it's a, it was a rarity, and yet it used to be something that happened all the time. The social network has changed in that way. And that Absolutely. in of itself is a really interesting thing to wonder about. Why did that happen? How did that happen? All there's, the a, uh, there's, there's a comedian, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, his name is, and he does a bit about, you know, back in the 70s, someone would come by and they just randomly knock on the door. We've got company, go get the Edmonds. We've got company and let's, let's spread out the Sanka. And, and now he, he, he fast forwards to today and it's like the doorbell rang and they, you know, he does like the military, like who's go, who's at the door. It's just, it's a rarity and it's, it's unfortunate. And I think it was well before social media too, Dr. Joe, it, 
it lost its lust there. Do you think it coincided with like the rise of the stranger danger kind of paranoia? Yeah. I don't know I don't what know. it was. I mean, I also have to think that, um, you know, there's that distance now, even with the phone, it's considered just absolutely rudeness to just call someone outright. You can't, you can't enter, you can't intrude anymore. You have to set up the time to make that call and to have it agreed upon. So some kind of formalizing keeps going on <laughs> that you just want to say, can we undo this at some point? But right. I don't think we will. Well, it's almost, you know, the isolationism, right? It's the, it's the, the separating yourself from the community a little bit, Dr. Joe, where these tribal, you know, relationships that we've talked about on the show a bunch when these communities where, you know, you're all kind of in it together, we're all kind of separating, right? We're creating our, our mini tribes within our family. But if you're not within our family, like you better make an appointment, you yeah, know? It's so true. It's too bad. I enjoyed it. I used to love just popping by and, you know, I mean, it's, it's the same with the kids. Like you see those pictures every once in a while up on the internet, you know, um, where there's six kids at the door, you know, is Billy home to come out and play? You know, that doesn't happen. It's just, I mean, my kids, my oldest kid is 17 and that never really happened, but for like one family, two families, uh, you know, in our neighborhood. But for the most part, it's, it's very different, but anyway, we, we digress a little bit there. But no, no, but but I wonder whether whether it is um, because of the neighborhoods that we do live in. I mean, we're a bit more rural. We're not like living in an apartment complex. Maybe in an apartment complex is different, where you just go and you know, just knock on someone's door because you have such a close interaction. But we don't know, so we can no. just speculate. Let's go yeah. back to Diane, who's here. And first of all, where, where are you actually? Where are you calling in from? Oh, that's a complicated question, but I can answer it, actually. I'm in Virginia Beach, Virginia, but I'm in quarantine here because I've just had an exodus. I'm in exile from Florida, which anyone, a thinking person, would be, I think, at this point. But anyway, we're, we're planning to go up north. We're going to go up to the Hudson Valley where we're going to... Um, rent a house just to be able to be near um, family again because we are too isolated and um, maybe we'll even have some surprise guests. I don't know. But it, it, it is really true what you're saying, Dr. Joe. I mean, you know, part of it is our environment. But yeah, right now I'm in Virginia Beach um, at a quarantine Airbnb for 14 days. We're three days in. And what's amazing though is that we can still do our shows doesn't really matter where we are i mean that is one of the advantages that we have of zoom and our, our new technology so it's not restricting it's it super cool anyway. yeah. yeah we all we all kind of figured that out quick didn't we hmm. you know yeah. it's a little bit sci-fi to be talking to people like this but you know it's it's working right where we are communicating we are staying connected i think so, so Florida, go ahead Oh my. So Florida was not a, a good time for you. Like we're up here in Massachusetts and, uh, you know, we're hearing things on the news and such, but it, was it not going so good right there, down there? Well, you know, the thing is that um, people are flagrantly disregarding what they're meant to do in society, which is to protect one another and 
and ourselves. And so they weren't wearing masks and, and kind of, um, it became some sort of a battle cry, you know, that infringes on my freedom or that doesn't feel good or something. And it's like, no, you don't understand we're having a crisis. So what you do is hard stuff, you know, right. they didn't want to do any hard stuff. Right. So, it was America. It was America. So there's so many interpretations of this. It's, it's a it's really it's disheartening but um yeah so we need to be in a place that you know pulls together and um and is not as you know dangerous but we didn't feel you know we didn't feel any encroachment but then again we live on the great separator which is water and in our canal you would see boats go by with people you know nine people practically capsizing the boat and you know no masks and kind of you know hell no we won't go kind of attitude it, it's really it just was it's a little scary but mostly our motivation is just to be able to get together with our daughter and son-in-law and um have our dogs not get along and you know the usual things that constitute family so so in terms of of the show um as, as you sort of look at these folks in Florida and other places throughout the country that some do adhere to what these five fundamentals are so that we can all stay safe, some don't. What's, what's your take on that in terms of, you know, if they would be on your show and exploring, you know, like we do, who we are and why we do what we do. It seems like there's a very similar theme between the Dr. Joe show and, uh, and your show. What do you think about that? I mean, have you had anybody on the show just talking about their experience with COVID? I do, but it tends to, um, because the identity search is kind of a self-selecting, you know, if you're introspective enough to be doing that, like asking, who am I? Then you're really not this person who is so putting it out there in your face, you know, that um, I, I rules are for other people. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of role models for that kind of behavior now. I guess that there are probably potentially a lot of people I could interview, right, Dr. Joe? But, you know, the thing is that um, I, I think it entails what you talk about a lot, which is empathy and even theory of mind, you know, getting inside someone else's psychic space I have talked to people outside of the show who have explained this to me very carefully and, you know, that, that there are these conspiracy theories and um, that they feel disempowered by, like, quote, caving in um, and they feel this this loss of their autonomy and their rights. Um and the fact that their rights don't, you know, they infringe on another, that is the part that's escaping. And um, so I feel as though it's also incumbent on some of us to say, wait a minute, <laughs> that's my that's my airspace too. Right, sure. Can, can we talk about how you came up with the show about identity and self-discovery? Well, it was... Um, you know, they say that you should really talk about or write what you know. And um, I spent a pretty long time trying to figure out my own identity. So um, it was funny because um, 
I was interviewed for on Voice America when my book came out, Fixing the Faiths, and that was in 2019. And then afterwards, the interviewer said to me, listen, um, I think you could do a show. And I, it took me, I mean, there was a gestation of, I mean, first, I wasn't even sure I was interested, able, willing. I mean, I, I just didn't know. It wasn't the gear I was in. Then I molded over for about eight months or so, and I kept the only. I thought to myself, it just has to be authentic. It has to be what I spend my time doing, which is either trying to get back in touch with myself or try to figure out who that self is um, as we evolve and and interact with one another. That's how it eight, came about. Eight months, close to a full gestation. It. it truly was it was it was really i looked at it that way myself i was just like oh this is this is yeah. interesting fixing the fates um sounds like an amazing book i've read a little bit of, of some of the stuff what a discovery story how on earth can, can you just tell folks about that because it's such a compelling story about um, well, yeah, the capsule summary um, is that I was born um, in Germany, actually, um, and w and I was in, uh, I was put into a German orphanage. At the time, they were Kinderheims, so these were places where your young, unprepared mother could actually come and visit you. Um, I didn't know that she did do that, but I was m most gratified to know um to have found that out. Anyway, I was in the German orphanage. The German orphanage was run by a doctor of child psychology. And that man had a sister who'd immigrated to America. Um, and her daughter had newly been married and found that they, this young couple couldn't conceive. So they went back um, to through the uncle to get some selections from the orphanage. And he sent over a slew of photographs and said, here's what we've got. And, um, you know, like, I think he also said, P.S., this one's been here for a while. So, you know, um, and he, he actually, I, he, on the bright side, he did make a little recommendation that I was somehow, um, I had a sunny disposition. That was my, <laughs> that was the caption under my photograph, sunny. So, I came to America when I was almost two, and um, I was adopted by this lovely American couple and lived in Philadelphia growing up. N always knew that I was adopted, didn't know anything else about biological family. And then when I was 47, just two weeks ago, no, I'm kidding, yeah, 16 no. years ago now, no, even more, holy smokes, this math is really getting elusive. It's even more than that. It was 18 years ago that I was contacted out of the blue by letter by my biological father, which is all backwards because fathers don't need to come out of the woodwork. Usually it's the other way around. You know, it's the mother looking for the child or even more commonly that a child seeks their own mother. But I um, never had any leads on any of that. And there's a lot of scariness to it. So anyway, this man appeared in my life when I was 47 and said, I'm your biological father and I'd like to be part of your life. Whoa. Wow. How did he find you? 
Oh, they have, um, you know, social services, networks. Um, you would think it, my birth would be prior to computers, but apparently they got everything from microfish onto disk in enough time that they, they could track. You know, um, I was through international social, social services, say through Frankfurt. Then, you know, they had an office in Baltimore, and that's um, where the letter originated. It, it was from the agency. So when I got it, it was this very circumspect, you know, if you know a person called Diane Lee, and she was born in this month, in this year, um, you know, please get in touch. And if not, disregard this letter. <laughs> it's like, I wonder if you take off that box and just say, leave me alone. No, I never would have done that. I was curious oh. all my life. Wow. You know, the I am approach, because the four domains have interconnection, home, social, biological, and I see how we see ourselves, how we think other people see us. Small changes can have big effects. And boy, what an effect this must have had. This is a small change. You, you just get a random letter. Was it, it was actually a letter? Yeah, it was a letter. And my dear um, mother, my adoptive mother, um, we just lost my dad six months prior. So um, there again, it was it was a very short window when I had no father. My dad, my beloved dad, died in February of two thousand and two, and in September of two thousand and two, the letter came from. I use the name Otto because I changed it in the I mean, I've changed the names and they don't mind actually, it turns out. But Otto, um, yeah, then I got the letter and my mother said, I almost didn't give this to you. And I said, holy cow, you've got to give it to me. It's addressed to me. It's my whole life is in this, wow. you know, I could, we could tell it was vibrational. She was holding it like in trembling hands. But my dad had died and she said, nothing matters anymore. So here you go. Okay, so it's it's stunning. So first, I, I I love the pseudonym that you've chosen, Otto, because it's the same forward and backwards. Really <laughs> yes. interesting choice. Really interesting choice of names in that way. But you know, I can't help. I'm a shrink. I get so shrinky. Um, love that. So the motivation. What was Otto's motivation? Well, <clears throat> you know, um, his version of it was he had to to resolve some outstanding issues in his life and um you know honestly dr joe you, you well you know looking at um types and you know he was a banker and i have to think that in his mind's eye like the columns didn't quite tally like he, he you know this went in but then he didn't know where it came out and the, he was trying to even things up in his mind and um you know initially he proposed a, a very um simplistic story of what happened it was far more complex and i do think that there was a guilty conscience at work there um in addition his very strict mother had just died um i think three years before he just been diagnosed with parkinson's um you know the clock was ticking when you don't have much time left what kind of stands out you know what's resonant but you didn't do anything about it kind of thing um and i also think he he thought to himself that if he didn't make himself known to me, I might not know 
my heritage. And that was extremely important to him. Mm. I'm just curious, had he come to visit you in the orphanage? Um, he was present at my birth, but, <gasps> um, but apparently never came to the orphanage. No, we know that he didn't because um, <laughs> another mind-boggling letter arrived at my doorstep um, you know, about uh, years later, maybe eight years into the, the saga with Otto. Um, and it was written in my mother's hand. Um, she was with me in the orphanage, not just because she visited me, but also because she took a job to be with me in the orphanage. And um, she was only 20 years old. So, you know, she, she just was working as a kind of domestic helper in the orphanage. But no, Otto was never there. Um, and she wrote this letter saying, you know, um, do you think you could, you know, like make good on your promise to, you know, introduce your family to us? And it was clear that he hadn't, he wouldn't, and was not to be. So, will you remain in touch with your mother that whole time? No, um, unfortunately, I never knew her. She, um, it, uh, my contact with Otto um, in 2002 was, in fact, the first biological relative that I ever had contact with. And he was correct in his assumption that I would never know my biological roots if it hadn't been for him. Um, <clears throat> because um, internet-wise, I hadn't had any success. I mean, maybe, maybe there was an alternate scenario, but... Um, you know, when, when he appeared, it was then that I said, okay, you're here. That's great. I certainly appreciate you acknowledging my existence. And now I need to know who is my biological mother. And we took it from there. It took us about, took us a while to get all of that information. Turned out that she'd passed away. Um, I did, wasn't a near miss. I, I would have freaked out if it was like six months you know, with that, but it was like 18 years. Um, she died quite young. And um, actually her widower, who I was lucky enough to meet, did tell me that he thought that losing me and um, never finding me again, although she searched for me for the rest of her life, um, led to her early death. So how... I I'm so sorry. I don't mean to pry. I can't help myself. No, quite right. But, but in, in terms of knowing that she had been looking for you, do you think that that changed things for you as well, as opposed to wondering if she'd been looking for you or, or finding out that she'd never looked for you? Did that have an influence? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the strongest. It's... Love, I mean, is one of, is the strongest force in the universe, and the strongest impulse, I think, is to be acknowledged, to have your existence acknowledged. And I think there was a part of me that wasn't really, really, really quite sh sure. Um, I mean, it sounds absurd to say this, but whether I existed, I wasn't really always sure because. I had these pre-conscious memories of being in the orphanage. I had sensory memories of my mother um, that I could finally confirm, you know, when I met her um, surviving family. Um, it absolutely turned my world around to, to find out that, not just that I was wanted, I think, you know, many 
many of us are far more wanted than we ever could imagine. Um, we project on ourselves that we've been rejected, but that's an ego talk. Um, and I, I think that, you know, but to have the verification, to have the validation of my life as something that was desired um, twice by my mother and then, you know, by Otto, um, it was really very touching and it touched me to the core and it gave me a solid core that I, I literally didn't have before. It's so powerful, man. It's such a powerful story. And I think, I think it will resonate with so many people because as you know, saying the Dr. Joe show repeatedly in our heart of hearts, we just want to feel valued by somebody else. And certainly folks who have either been adopted or feel that they've been abandoned by their biological family can often go for a long time feeling that they have less value and my exist at all. Um, and yet so many of these folks are also remarkably resilient, so resilient. And, and often it's because there has been at least one person in their life who has seen them as valuable. Mm -hmm. Somebody. Well, that's so true. Um, I mean, I mentioned my adoptive parents and, um, my father in particular was quite, um, um, a kindred spirit of mine and also my grandmother. So this grandmother whose brother was the child psychologist, she's the one that went over to Germany and, and got me like flew me back. So then there was no turning back. She insisted on telling this story to anybody, you know, that was introduced me to. And in that weird way, Dr. Joe, I felt like I had value because somehow I was special to her. You know, even if you don't see it through yourself, you see yourself through the lens of someone else. And she was so proud of her role in this. She was so, she just, I think she felt complete. Um, she'd lost her husband decades earlier. Um, you know, she worked and, 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 and actually I worked side by side with her when I was growing up and um, you know, she came as an immigrant. She didn't know English, and I cooked with her in the catering company where she'd gone to work. So, she was a special force in my life. I would say, this value thing that you're onto though is so big, and I think, um, you know, how we define our own value and how we get in touch with it, even, even if it's just the smallest voice, the tiniest voice of why we have value it just needs to be almost stoked like a flame you know yeah yep i think really is part of our core and it's one of the core needs that we have but i think you know it's, it goes beyond maslow's hierarchy and all these other things because it's not it's not just about you know do i have you know my resources if if we don't feel we have value um, I don't think very much else matters. And that's why I think a lot of people, you know, going back to the, the folks who don't want to put a mask on, for some, somehow this, this may be interpreted as they feel that this is an imposition on their value. You know, somebody else will tell them what to do, and somehow that, that means they're less in control of their life, which, you know, certainly, and I am, 
um, it just doesn't always lead to success. So how do people get the book? Oh, um, well, through hopefully through their local still existing indie bookseller um, with a drive-by or pickup, um, or or you can go to the Big A. It's it's there, fixing the fates. Um, I, I do I do think that this idea of being diminished, you know, it does have to do with something that comes from the outside, right? It's not an inner definition. Like I, I do think, um, you know, as an, sorry, as an object, um, I, I was aware that I completed the lives of my parents by coming, you know, they didn't have any other children. Um, I could tell that I had value to them. And that's why it's also confusing when you can see you perfectly well that you're valuable to others, but you can't figure it out for yourself what it is inside to you. And, you know, they named me after, they renamed me, you know, I had a German name and um, they didn't want that because that was far too revealing. We couldn't blend in or I, 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 you know, then look, you might as well just get somebody who's Chinese, right? I was, I couldn't pass. So, um, and they were not up for that. They were homogeneous 1950s couple and on ascension and very aspirational and, um, so they renamed me. And who they ne- named me after? Miss America that year. <laughs> Is that a lot to live up to or what? Uh-huh. I mean, it's the bathing suit contest, the, the, the speech competition, the, I mean, you name it, the beauty. I mean, everything. I knew that I had to have all, I just in some way, there was just this objectified, I had value as a kind of an object and it, it took, it took, I think into adolescence before I kind of figured out, um, that I had to really get beyond that. I, I really had to break through and transcend that definition just, of myself. Just think about it from their perspective, you know, naming you the most at the time, the most perfect woman in America, right? Isn't that what the competition really was, was to be? That's, that's, uh, Quite, quite an honor to be named after that person. I want to ask you something that you touched on, though. You went back and you spoke to biological family, and you said there was a sensory experience that you had with them. Did I get that correct? Where you, you um, with, felt- with my biological mother, who was with me that first year in the orphanage, um, not, not constantly, but, you know, a lot more than I ever imagined when I thought I had been abandoned. Abandoned is not a correct term. You're being put in the hands of people who are going to care for you. Um, but I did have sensory impressions. Of course, I felt ridiculous. I could never bring myself to say that to anyone because, first of all, who would care? I'm supposed to be assimilating into this family. And you're absolutely right. It was so flattering that they named me after Leanne Merriweather. Now I'm really dating myself. No, it was 1957. I'll I'll come clean with it. Um, But anyway, um, you know, I didn't dare say anything about any of my impressions from before, before life was supposed to go away, right? That's... like BCAD, there was like a real 
line of delineation. And um, so it wasn't until I met my mother's, my biological mother's brother, uh, which was around 2004, um, her eldest and, and closest brother, she was one of eight. And, um, you know, I, I, we had a lot of wine at their table and thank goodness. And um, I just leaned over and I said to him, you know, I've, I think that this is, this is, I think this is how my mother, this was her scent. And I think this is the kind of complexion that she had. I mean, in eight, you get a lot of range. So it wasn't like they all looked alike. They did not. Plus an age range of some, you know, really expansive age range. Um, so I said, I think she smelled like this. I think her voice sounded like this. And I tried to kind of imitate it. Um, and he just stared at me. And I, I knew, I, I knew I was dead on, right? And he said, that's it. That's exactly what she was like. So, I mean, those, those traits. Um, because until that day, I'd never, you know, seen photographs of her. And anyway, they were still photographs and grainy and, you know, it, no, that was something cellular, it was a cellular memory. That's fascinating. Wow. And, and you were, did you say two when you got on the plane to come to the States? I was, I was, um, a little, I wasn't quite two. We I mean, not even quite two. I wasn't quite two. No, I was sort of like in the, I was about four months away from turning two. Um, but I, um, the reason that it really, even, you know, I had to be very clear by my, with myself on this, because, you know, if you start to read psychology, the first year of life, you know, you, you get like the rubber stamp defective. If something bad happened to you that year, much less losing your mother or losing your family or not being, you know, wanted or the, all these things. And I had to like unstick that stamp from me, you know, like pretty, pretty um, vociferously. I really um, was very overjoyed to get this letter in my mother's hand about her being um, by my crib and kissing me and um, how I look. And unfortunately, I looked exactly like Otto. Um, it, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you know, but this contact that we had, this intimate contact, I mean, it really meant the world. And, and it definitely went right into that memory part of your brain. Fascinating. Which is located where? Is that in the PFC or no, where, where are we now? system. It's deep in your limbic system. It's uh -huh. amygdala and hippocampus. It's it's a very deep, rational part of your brain where memories are living. And then you can sort of pull things into your prefrontal cortex as you retrieve those memories. Um, and then all the emotions that come along with that. Um, but wow, to, to have a, a, an actual document like that, a letter in your mother's, Oh, wow. It's in the safety deposit box in the bank that just closed because of COVID. But, you know, I'll get it back. Believe me, it just couldn't be anywhere else because it's I, I, I have to even holding it is otherworldly because she also made this cutout. She started writing the letter. Oh, it was over the course of a couple of months. 
And she started writing it um, during the Christmas holidays and she cut out a candle and it was almost like it a burnt, like it had singe marks. And I was like, it's, it's like her burning questions, you know, will you make good on your promises, Otto? And I just, you know, I hold it and, and she's describing me and her, you know, tender embrace and her nickname for me and it all just comes alive. I mean, and when you talk about the limbic system and getting that into the prefrontal cortex, I think there's a lot of very loose, um, extreme emotions that go on before it's ever really processed. Is that... Is that even possible? Um, it was something that filled my heart to have that from her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even if it's 47 years later. Mm-hmm. And so how does this connect with identity? And I mean, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because there you are, you're living your life. You know something's happened. You know, right, because you, t- you said earlier that you always knew you were adopted, which, which you know, kudos to your parents for doing that. Because a lot of parents think, oh, no, I, I can't tell them. And then all of a sudden the kid learns about it. And it's like, how do I, I back then? How do I integrate this? It, it was kudos to my parents. But, you know, all of this is ongoing because I have come to learn. I mean, I'm talking about like last summer I came to learn because I was back in Germany and I was visiting um, the, um, actually the daughter of this child psychologist. And um, she was saying to me, he insisted, your parents didn't want to tell you anything. He realized that you would have no sense of value at all, no sense of grounding or centeredness um, much less an, an identity, a biological identity, were you not to know the truth. And it is so important to know the truth because I, I think at a, um, a kind of a collective memory level, we we know as people that we are entitled to the truth about our origins. It's just something we know about ourselves. And... Um, and my parents very much wanted to camouflage the whole thing and put a tarp over, have me be the next Leanne Merriweather, and um, they they didn't want. It. But my grandmother, that's why she was such a champion to me. Um, she kept this story alive. I got on the Lufthansa plane, I went over and got her, and I brought her here. And I think there were so many times where you know I would come home from school and I'd say, "Mom, you know." I um, that I told my I told the school the classmates and my teacher um, that I was born in Stuttgart. She said, "Why did you tell them that?" Mm. And I said, "Because I was." I, I don't really think I love my parents and my mother. Um, <clears throat> my mother just passed away in the end of May this, this year. I'm sorry. Um, thank Aww. you. Um, she, she, we had at the end such a wonderful relationship and a lot of it really had to do with what you talk about in terms of empathy, Dr. Joe, of, of my just completely how none of this mattered really, except that I needed to really respect where she was coming from and her need to control 
the narrative and to protect herself as in her role as her mother, as a mother to me. Um, and there was so much love involved in that when all the politics of it went, fell away. Yeah. Wow. Guys, you got any, any thoughts about this? Mark, Tom? It's pretty tough so stuff. That kind of explains why she hesitated to give you the letter, but she mm -hmm. gave it to you, which yes. is a beautiful thing. So, so your show obviously is um, has originated based on your growth through all of this, and 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 your introspection on on you and how you came of age. Is that what are some of the questions you inquire when you're talking to someone? Do you have a set list of of must asks or? Do you do a tremendous amount of research on the person before you dive into the questions or how does your show work? Well, I'm tremendously nosy. So I just, and the a lot, many of the people that I interview um, have also written books. So um, I read their book and I, you know, when I, when something comes alive for me in the book, um, I, I write it down and then I, try to figure out what that's about and I try to contextualize it and um yeah and I, I make a it's all very tailor-made there's nothing no I don't have a set of questions um I'm just nosy and curious and I try to get to the bottom of things you could imagine how that might be important for me and um and so I just really noticed also in this generation, maybe um, particularly women, but also certainly men coming out of that really expansive age of the 50s and 60s. And then what happened to the 60s and 70s when we were all, you know, how did we go from, you know, living in the hippie garden to becoming um, yuppies and um, the, the baby boomers? How did that happen? And you know, it's it's really very curious. It's 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 almost inexplicable, but it isn't inexplicable. It has a lot to do with obviously the social dimension that you you all talk about, what was going on environmentally. But you know, through that arc of people like kind of losing themselves um, or losing that original person, um, you know, who not only did crazy things, but who really had some sort of spirituality or um, some sort of drive in, inside of them to to know about the world and to try to even fix the world. Um, you know, where, there was that arc of recovering, you know, later in life. Well, what happened? Where's my, and who am I now? You know, I've gotten lost. I've been on the treadmill. Um, I have to jump off this, this merry-go-round. You know, a lot of that was going on um, earlier. Um, you know, when I was in my 50s, too, people were just, you know, dropping out again from from being overworked and wondering what the meaning of it all was. So there's a lot of ways to approach who am I and lots of reasons for it, you know, to become a topic. Um, now I think we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions, too. I mean, who are we going to be? when we come out of this, we're going to have to start, I think, fighting for something again. If it's 
it's not, you know, just sanity at a climate level, um, because clearly these pandemics are arising out of a negligence of our of our very real and physical environment and our abuse of it. Um, so here we are. We're we're no longer the 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 predator. We're the prey now. We're being predated. We've talked a lot about that, Dr. Joe. That we're on the uh, evolutionary shift. We are. I I truly believe we are on a cusp. We will get to choose which way we go. And I'd like to think, you know, more people are doing this and introspective and wondering why they do what they do, and realize that they have choices. That they really do have choices if they can shift from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex, if they can reflect on why they do what they do, instead of just be reflexive. To be reflective, not reflexive, is critical in this. Um, and I, I think that every one of the people that, that you are talking about on your show and yourself are reflective. You know, they must be reflecting, why am I doing this? Where do I come from? Who am I? Why do I do what I do? And you know, I, I'd like to think that, that Mark and Tom are are doing more of that just simply because we meet with each other every week, you know, and we think about this and we listen to other people and, and we have these, you know, remarkable people who are making changes in the world and willing to come and, and share that with other people. Um, it's, it's truly a, a gift to have you on here, man. Oh, well, thank you. to have... You know, Mark and Tom as, as my companions through this journey that, that we're creating. But well, there's there's some alchemy too to the conversation, right? I mean, we just get so much further by by speaking to one, and it sounds so stupid and basic. But I mean, really, I just don't think I would. You know, I I come along because of meeting you, and I mean, I, I think that there's just this alchemy to communication and I do hope that um, you know the prefrontal cortex and and not being um, not having knee-jerk consumptive um, you know predatory urges um, and and really asking ourselves hey wait a minute um, you know I think as you say it begins with individuals and that's how we change it does seem as though individuals, you know, are awakening on a rather larger scale than before. And maybe necessity is the mother of invention there. But I, I think that it, it's happening across the board. It's, it's happening across all kinds of lifestyles, genders, um, political positions, um, status positions. It's really kind of exciting. I think it is. Tom? Is there not a danger, though, in that awakening, I imagine, for most people being a reflexive awakening? Like, you mentioned Mark and I being, you know, being able to reflect every week. We're lucky to have Dr. Joe. For most people, though, it's just a series of reflections. Where do you, where do you recommend people go or what resources can they use to tap into their prefrontal cortex and start thinking reflectively? Because we're just seeing a tug of war. 
Well, we are seeing a tug of war, but I think there's always that dynamic. I mean, I would go right back to Dr. Joe because Dr. Joe is now on my podcast. So when I'm looking for inspiration and, you know, trying to find the right questions to ask, I mean, basically, um, I'm open to questions. I need to know what to ask, what kinds of things and what kinds of things do we have agency over? Those things, those are very important. I bet you would be a big surprise to people to know how much autonomy and agency we really do have. Isn't it a shame that we've gotten to this point where we feel as though we've we've very little? So uh, I think it's these resources. I think it's people who have not just um, an empathic personality like Dr. Joe, but this steeped into this like tremendous, you know, tradition of, of um, psychology and um, also from what I can tell, even physics and calculus and music. Hello. Um, you know, like all the creative forces. Um, and I think uh, I, you know, I just avail myself. I've got like now, you know, a resource list, you know, it's a circle that kind of, it varies and, um, you know, it depends on what you want to wear that day, but, uh, and what you need. Um, but there's a lot more out there and the connectivity of the internet is making it that much easier to land, um, and to find things that you need. Yes, it can be very much, um, a kind of, a, a knee jerk kind of thing, but, you know, we need to, um, find the center and recalibrate and rebalance. And it's all about that in the whole, you know, IMAX um, scheme, which I also am very delighted to be learning of. Yeah. And remember, that's, that is the second rule of the I am, you know, because everybody has an I am and everybody's interested in what you think about them. You control no one. You influence everyone. And you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. And that is power. For all those people who think they have no power, you have tremendous power. It's influence. And you will choose the kind of influence you want to be. And so many people think that they have no power, that they have no control. But you have influence. That one vote. That's why every teenager that I meet, you know, one of my patients, I'll say, as soon as you turn 18, please register to vote. Because that small change can have a big effect. You control no one, you influence everyone. And you really will get to choose the kind of influence that you want to be. And, and that sort of gets to, you know, we've got a few minutes left uh, on WATV. Folks, if you want to shift over to Facebook Live at some point, we'll maybe be talking a little bit longer. But we ask all of our guests this. So the first thing, small changes have big effects. With your experience with your show on introspection and identity, what small change can you recommend to our listening audience that could have a big effect? Well, the glib answer is don't have the last glass of wine. Even if you have to have the first, that's okay. But don't have the last one. Um, no, I, I am serious. I, I did think about this question because I love this question. And I think it's about tuning in to inner guidance 
which is intuition. I know that um, intuition for me is kind of like a, um, a collective, like there's a kind of um, memory, an unconscious memory, a set of memories that when I, when it matches up with something that resonates, even if I don't know why, I follow it. And it's the opposite of an impulse. In fact, it often refutes an impulse. It, it often holds me back from something and I don't even know why, but later I'm so glad. So what I would say to people, if you want to make a small change, the minute you have the intuition, I should get up right now. Don't talk yourself into going back to sleep. Mm. Follow your intuition and let it follow, let you follow it throughout your day and see where you go. See when you eat, see what you eat, see what things you notice or take the time to notice or take the time to think about that you don't ordinarily, that you're too busy for. Yeah, I'd go deep into the intuitive part of yourself. I think that's wonderful. And you know, one of the things I do in, in, when I train folks in psychiatry and mental health and these things is um, I tell them intuition is the precursor to technique. You know, if you have an intuition, follow it but then understand why you have that intuition. And then you can do it anytime. It becomes a technique. So intuition is a precursor to technique. Um, I love that. Practice. It, it's really, it's a critical part of, of how you become more empathic. You know, you have to understand what's happened. In, in psychiatry, um, it's a different field. Uh, because in all other fields of medicine, we have instruments that we can poke into people. You know, you can look in someone's nose, you can, you know, look in their mouth, you can look in their ears, you can, you can look in places that most people would not want to look. Um, but in psychiatry, you are the instrument. You are the instrument. So if you have a feeling, if you have an intuition, it's a reflection, usually, of the person across from you. And so follow that intuition and be able to then do it repeatedly and it becomes a technique. That's what the I am is about. You keep doing this enough, it just becomes part of your life. You begin looking at people and wondering why they do what they do and respecting why they do what they do. And that leads to value and that leads to trust. We'll, we'll be talking more about this on your show tomorrow. So the second part of the I am you know, you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. What kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be an instigator. I want people to say, um, <clears throat> you know, you just kind of let, let a little spark there for me. And I remember my mother saying that to me all the time. Yeah, you, you can say it isn't your fault but you instigated the whole gang to go bike riding in the park and that and i know you're an instigator and you know what mom <laughs> there in heaven i'm just listening to you yeah that's awesome. wonderful thank you so much for being here tonight thank such a pleasure and we will be back next week ben you doing okay in there i'm still here dr joe and it's been fun all right We'll see you guys all next week. Yeah. Take care, bud. Tomorrow, folks. Feel good, good. Friday. Don't.